This morning we're going to read from verse 17 to verse 23. Verse 17. But you, beloved, remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time there will be mockers following after their own ungodly desires. These are the ones who cause divisions, worldly-minded and devoid of the Spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting anxiously for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And have mercy on some who are doubting. Save others, snatching them out of the fire. And on some have mercy with fear, hating even the garment polluted by the flesh. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this special time to be together. We thank you for the gathering of the saints. We thank you for the privilege of gathering around your word by which we live. Lord, we acknowledge that we do not live by bread alone. We live by every word that proceeds from your mouth. So Lord, we ask that through your word that you have given, that you would cause us to have ears to hear, give us understanding. Please help us to think about what we've just read. Please open our eyes and our understanding to, to see you, Lord, and to see what it is you want us to hear in this passage. Lord, please, may we listen to your word and eat it up like starving men would eat up bread. Lord, we thank you for loving us so much that you would give us your word so that we might live. We pray this in your name and pray that you would be glorified in everything that we do. In Jesus' name, amen. Three Scottish men who were hard of hearing, all three of them, were on a train sitting together in a, car, in a, in a train car. And uh, they're all hard of hearing. And the first man says to the group, are we in Wembley? And the second man says, no, it's Thursday. And the third man says, me too. Waiter, bring us a scotch and soda. (laughs) You see, misunderstanding premises can lead to wildly misplaced conclusions, right? And there are many misunderstandings about the book of Jude, which, make, which makes Jude a, kind of a less appealing uh, letter in the New Testament, and one that is often confused and people would rather avoid it. Um, we've talked about one of those misunderstandings already in our series in Jude, In verse 4, Jude states explicitly what these false brothers who are in the church, what they are doing. Now this letter, he says, I'm writing to you to to exhort you to earnestly contend for the faith that has been once for all delivered to the saints. Because there are certain men who have crept in. They're irreverent men. And... In verse 4, he explicitly states what they're doing. But this verse is misunderstood. 
And if we misunderstand verse 4, then we misunderstand the, the rest of the book of Jude. The whole letter becomes misunderstood. And the way that many people understand verse 4, or many people understand the book of Jude, is that there are certain men who have crept in, false Christians, false brothers who are irreverent, and what they're doing is this. They believe in the gospel of grace. They believe in the true grace of God. They believe that Jesus died for our sins and that we're saved by grace and that we don't have to do any works in order to be saved. And they're taking that truth and they're using that to live any way that they want. Okay? They're taking the truth. Oh, I'm saved by grace. Ah, Jesus died for my sins and I don't have to keep any commandments to be saved. Great, I'm going to take that truth and now I'm going to go sin up a storm and do whatever I want because I don't have to keep any commandments. And this is a misunderstanding, brothers and sisters. Because Jude, if you understand, if you think that's what Jude is writing about, then the entire rest of the letter is basically an exhortation, don't do that or else you're damned. Right? No. Yes, we're saved by grace, through faith, but without works. But if you take that truth and think that you can go sin, you're damned. Don't do like these guys do. And so then the book of Jude really becomes, in my opinion, insensible and anti-gospel. It's just one of those letters in the New Testament that reminds us all that grace isn't really grace and as great as we thought it was. The misunderstanding arises in the last part of verse 4. Irreverent persons who turn the grace of our God, most translations will say something like lasciviousness or licentiousness, or some might say just lewdness or something like that. But in the Greek, the word is aselgeia, and the word in the Greek means lawlessness, insolence, wantonness. And the point here in verse 4 is that these men are taking God's grace and they're exchanging it for aselgeia. They're not using God's grace to sin. They're taking God's grace away and they're putting aselgeia in its place. And it's not a charge against people. It's a charge against God. It's saying God is not a God of grace. God is a God of aselgeia. God is a God of lawlessness. God is a God of wantonness. God is a God of insolence. It's not the grace of our God anymore. It's the lawlessness of God. That's how he forgives. God forgives us of our sins, not in any just kind of way. God forgives us of our sins because he wants to forgive us. He just, he's just not bound by any law at all. And so you don't need a, a bloody sacrifice in order to be saved. Don't you know that God can just forgive you apart from Christ? He's not bound by any law. And this is the idea here in the book of Jude. When you understand verse 4, it changes the rest of the letter. And suddenly, I believe, certain verses that are kind of opaque become clear. And you can see that this is the issue Jude is actually addressing. Now, I'd like to point out two other misunderstandings about the book of Jude that make it a less appealing book. Many people think that Jude is a disorderly rant. Okay? It's a disorderly rant. You can't really follow his flow of thought. He's so upset that he just writes and he's just spilling out condemnation on these guys the whole way through and you get to the end and he says amen and what was that all about? You know? It's hard to follow. It's wild. It's vociferous. That's a misunderstanding. Because on the contrary, brothers and sisters, the letter of Jude is actually one of the easier books to follow 
uh, its flow of thought. When provided you get verse 4 right. When you get verse 4 right, you're able to follow his flow of thought. Suddenly verse 5 to 7 is a refutation of that idea that God is lawless. And verse 8 to 10 is also showing that the angels themselves don't speak this way about God. In verse 11, you start to realize that the situation with Cain and with Korah and with Balaam are really all about thinking that God is lawless and denying a need for a priesthood or a sacrifice, the priesthood and the sacrifice of Christ and so forth. So I'd like to... to, uh, I have a book in my library at home and it's a book... um, on the New Testament, and it's written by non-Christians, secular writers, poets, and they, they each write on a different book of the Bible. And Grace Shulman, a secular writer and po- poet who lives in New York City, famous American poet, she wrote, she wrote on the book of Jude, and here's what she says about the book of Jude. She's not a Christian at all, but she says this, I am amazed by this writer's skill. However vehement his wrath, However unremitting his hatred of the dishonorable infiltrators, he sets forth his anger logically. At times his rage shakes the structure of the epistle, but always it is contained within the form. Never does the language disrupt the pattern, nor does it break down. It must not, for it supports the epistle's theme of propriety. In a letter about law and order, it would be strange as Strange if it was not an orderly letter, right? So, the witness of a secular writer. The second, another misunderstanding I'd like to point out is that many people think Jude is an essentially negative book. That the book of Jude, is most of it is just denouncement. That he's just got bad things to say about these false brothers. And the whole book, he's just denouncing false brothers. It's got a negative tone, a negative feel. Most verses are just negative. You're going to be condemned for doing this. You ever been around a really negative person who doesn't have anything good to say? You don't really want to be around a person like that very much, right? <laughs> you kind of just want to avoid them. They, they just get you down. And I think for many, the book of Jude is like that. you rather not read it. You have to read it at some point because it's in the New Testament. But it's not one of those uplifting letters that really instruct you and help you. It's just a bunch of negative denouncements. That, my friends, is a misunderstanding. The message and purpose of Jude is essentially positive. It is essentially instructive and not a mere denunciation. Douglas Moo, scholar, writes this about the book of Jude. We should not forget that his letter was not written to the false teachers. So he wasn't just sending a spam email to the false teachers saying, you're going to get it. Okay? It was not written to the false teachers. It was written to faithful Christians. These believers faced with an onslaught of false teaching in their churches, needed reassurance and instruction. This Jude provides in his letter. Reassurance and instruction. Thus, the long negative section of the letter, from verse 5 to 16, must be seen as serving the larger purpose he talks about in verses 3 to 4 and 17 to 23. That's what Douglas Moo says about Jude. 
So yes, there is a negative denunciation section in this letter, but it's serving a larger purpose of instruction and reassurance towards believers. And actually, I would actually expand his verses that he says are positive and that I would shrink the section that he says is negative. If you look at the book of Jude, verse 1 to 2 is a positive thing, right? He's, he's taught, encouraging the believers that they're loved by God, that they're kept for Christ, that they were called by God. He wishes them mercy and, and, and peace to be multiplied upon them. In verse 3, it's instructive. He's writing to tell them to contend for the faith. In verse 5 to 7, as I've argued in this series, this is actually a refutation of the uh, false teacher's argument. It's not just um, a general denunciation of their persons and a warning of them that you're going to be condemned. It's actually a refutation of their thoughts and their teaching. Uh, so, so also is verse 9. Verse 17 and 18 is a reminder of what the apostles have written for their encouragement. And verse 20 to 25 is all positive. It's an encouragement. It's instructive. It's to give them um, a vision and hope. And so if you count all the verses up in Jude, 15 of them, of the 25, are positive, instructive, teaching, to the believers, and ten of them are denunciations. So just to say the book is just this big negative denunciation is a simplification. Michael Green also writes this about the book of Jude. For all its forthright denunciation, there is a careful balance and interrelation between the different parts of this short epistle and a real depth of affection for the recipients. I don't know if you've noticed that. Maybe it will become more clear as we go on here near the end of the letter. I think it's clear in the beginning, though. Jude is very affectionate towards the Christians. So I hope in your mind, when you think about the book of Jude, you don't just think of it as a disorderly, angry, negative rant that's just going to get you down when you read it, and that is essentially telling you that, yeah, we believe we're saved by grace through faith, not with our works, but man, if you sin and use this, then you're damned. I hope that is not what you think the book of Jude is about. This morning we enter upon the final section of the epistle, which which, uh, contains instructions and a benediction. And this morning we're just going to look at the instructions. Here we find the first imperatives in the book of Jude. And in verse 17 to 23, they're in a little cluster. All that Jude explicitly tells Christians to do is found here in verse 17 to 23. Now one might say, what about verse 3? He says, earnestly contend for the faith. True, I would say that's an implicit imperative because he's simply saying in that verse, I put my my letter away that I was writing about the common salvation to write a letter to tell you to earnestly contend for the faith. So it's an implicit imperative. But here we have... The explicit imperatives. Here is when Jude explicitly says, Brothers and sisters, do this. This is what you are to do. And he has two goals in his imperatives. And we'll look at them this morning. The first one is he exhorts the Christians to stand firm. And he teaches them how to do that. Stand firm. And I will teach you 
and exhort you how to stand firm against false teaching. Can you guess what the second thing is? To reach out. He exhorts the Christians not only to stand firm and how you shall stand firm, but he exhorts them to reach out and to help others and teaches them how to do that as well. You know that when crisis hits, there are often people who have their head on their shoulders and they're able to help in the midst of a crisis, right? But there are other people when a crisis hits, they kind of just curl up in a fetal position in the, in the corner of the room and they're no help, right? You could see some of these... Well, you can see this when the news shares of natural disasters or bombings or things like that. You often see that in those crisis moments, there are certain people that are able to just rise up and, and help in the situation. There are certain people that kind of just don't know how to handle the situation. They just break down. Um, now, Jude isn't telling you to you know, be like that in natural disasters and things, but he, Jude wants Christians to be like that in spiritual crisis. He wants Christians to be the kind of people who when crisis hits are able to stand firm with their head on their shoulders so that they can help and reach out to others. Could you imagine if spiritual crisis hit, false doctrine came and I just can't handle all this false doctrine we just curl up in a corner and start crying? Okay. I can't handle the disagreement and we just cry. I can't handle that new song the worship leader singing. Jude wants us to have our heads on our shoulders and to stand firm in the midst of crisis. He wants us to be like lifeguards who are really good at swimming so that they can jump into the water and help people who aren't good at swimming. Could you imagine a lifeguard who couldn't swim himself? Wouldn't be any use, right? So get this in your mind. This is what Jude wants for the believers as is seen in this last in this section of imperatives, verse 17 to 23. So let's look at these two things, standing firm and reaching out. First thing, standing firm. Verse 17. Now it should not, it should not surprise us, it should come as no surprise, that the very first explicit imperative in this letter has to do with our minds. If you've been around All Saints for a while, you know that we talk a lot about the mind and we really can't say enough about the mind because all our actions and all our attitudes comes from our state of mind. What are we filling our mind with? If our mind is filled with truth, then our actions and our attitudes will correspond to our minds. If our minds are filled with lies or if our minds are not filled with anything, then our actions and our attitudes will correspond to that. In the midst of a crisis, that's really the difference. What makes the difference between those people who are able to help and those people who break down? It's usually mental preparation or knowledge that they have. And that's what makes the difference. So we really can't say it enough. We can't remind you enough that it is about remembering. Remember that it is about remembering. And Jude says here, to remember because we are only as strong as our minds are. Just two illustrations of how powerful the mind is. I may have shared this with some people uh, personally, but I, I love this story. Uh, there was a professor at John Hopkins University named Kurt Richter. And Kurt Richter was a, was a man who did all sorts of experiments on animals. And, and he's very respected in the 
in the animal science field, even though he's kind of controversial in some of his experiments. He did an experiment with rats. And one of his experiments with rats, he had a bucket of water that he put the rat in. The water was over the rat's head. And there was no way that the rat could get out of the bucket of water. And he put the rat into the bucket of water and he timed it to see how long it would swim and stay alive. And his results were consistent that if he put a rat into the bucket of water, it was consistent that about 15 min- in about 15 minutes the rats would drown. 15 minutes. So after getting these results and, and confirming that this is the behavior of the rats when he puts them in, he, he changed his, the experiment a little bit and he put a rat into the water and about 14 minutes, right before the rat drowned, he took the rat out of the water, he gave it some food, he let it sleep for a night. The next day, he put that same rat that he had brought out of the water back into the water. And that rat, and all the rats that he tested this with, swam for three days, 60 hours in that bucket. So the first ones died in 15 minutes, and the other rats died and drowned 60, after 60 hours. Now what does that mean? He had hope. This is the power of hope, okay? That those rats that drowned at 15 minutes did not drown because they ran out of strength but they drowned because they ran out of hope. After 50 minutes, those little rats had no... They figured it out. I'm not going to be able to get out of here. And they drowned. They gave up. But the rat that had hope, you know, someone took me out of this once. Maybe they'll take, it, take me out again. Kept swimming and swimming and swimming. This is the power of our minds, brothers and sisters. The power of truth. When God speaks to us and says, I am with you. When God speaks to you and says... You have a hope and a future with me. I will take care of you. And when we fill our minds with the Word of God, then we are strengthened to live our lives, strengthened to go through all sorts of things, right? It's when we forget His promises, it's when we don't fill our minds with truth that we are weak. So the importance of our minds. Or to give another illustration, it's often said that Christians make the best soldiers. Now I know that that's a super controversial subject and I'm not going to give you my take on that at this moment. But it is a fact, okay, that Christians tend to make the best soldiers. Why? Because Christians have hope of eternal life. You know, they talk about how there's no atheist in a foxhole. When the bullets are flying, people are praying, oh God, save me, don't let me die, right? But often Christians make the best soldiers because they have an understanding of life where death is not the end, right? And to perform your duty well, even if you die, is a noble thing. And this is what they attribute one of the great strengths of the man Stonewall Jackson in the Civil War in America. He was the soldier that he was because of his strong faith. It shouldn't surprise us, therefore, that the very first command of John the Baptist was metanoia, change your mind. He was speaking to men's minds. That's what his preaching was. And he was exhorting them to change the way that they think about themselves and about God and about the world. The first preaching of Jesus was metanoia. It's translated repentance, but the Greek word, change your mind. Jesus spoke to our minds. The first preaching of the day of Pentecost. What did Peter tell the people when they said, what should we do? He say, 
Find all the strength within you. Use your will. Stop sinning. Do all the right things and you'll be saved. He said also, metanoia, change your mind. And so Peter also spoke to the mind. Shouldn't surprise us that the very first explicit commandment commandment in the book of Romans, in the book of 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians, in Hebrews, in James, in 1 Peter, in Jude, and others, is all addressed to your mind. I think that as Christians we've typically ignored this very important thing in the Bible. Now what is Jude specifically wanting to inform their minds about here? He tells them in verse 17 to remember the words that were spoken by the apostles and in verse 18 he shows us what those words are. It's specifically a warning that the apostles gave about mockers and these false teachers who would come. The old adage is, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. False teachers and mockers are coming, the apostles said. In fact, they have already come. Wherever the gospel is, there will always be resistance to it, there will always be pushback, there will always be false teachers, mockers, and those who are resisting the truth wherever the gospel is. And so it is the same today. I mean, how often do you as a Christian think about this warning that the apostles gave? Does it only come up every now and again or do you remember this? That all around us is resistance to the truth and mockers. And it shouldn't surprise us, therefore, when people mock. How many of you kind of sometimes get surprised by mockers? Get a little shaken by mockers? You read a newspaper article, you hear about some new book that was published where they're mocking God or Christianity, and sometimes it can just shake you. Remember, the apostles told you it would be like this. And this warning is given so many times in the New Testament, it must be important, because it must be a real danger to people. Remembering helps us prepare and notice these mockers and protect ourselves from these mockers. It also helps us to remember that God is in total control. That when... Uh, wicked men rise, the Bible tells us. It doesn't mean that God is absent. Doesn't mean Where is God? Christianity and the truth is failing because God must not be real or He must not be around. It's going to overwhelm the truth eventually. God is in control. Look at verse 19. Jude tells the Christians that these false brothers that are in the churches are the fulfillment of this warning. They are the ones, Jude says. These are the ones who cause divisions. Worldly-minded, devoid of the Spirit. So Jude calls the brothers in the situation in his letter the mockers. The ones who go after their own irreverent desires, according to verse 18. We've already seen in the book of Jude how these men are mockers. If you look at verse 8 to 11, uh, 8 to 10, excuse me, it says, In the same way these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority and they revile or they scoff at angelic majesties. As we talked about, this is the government of God. They scoff at it. But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, he did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand, 
and the things which they know by instinct like unreasoning animals, it is by these things that they are destroyed. Look at verse 15 and 16. Jude quotes Enoch as saying that when God comes in the future, he's going to execute judgment upon all and to convict all the irreverent of all their irreverent deeds which they have done in the irreverent way. And get this, and of all the, uh, the harsh things which irreverent sinners have spoken against God, these are grumblers finding fault, following after their own desires. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining advantage. So they are the mockers. And what are they mocking in this, in this particular circumstance that Jude is addressing? What are they mocking in particular? They are mocking God. They are mocking His justice. They wouldn't outright come and say that they are, right? Because they've crept in unawares. It says in verse 4, it says they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. But they don't do that explicitly. They don't just say, hey, we're here and we deny God and we deny Jesus. But we're Christians. Everyone would say, what? But these guys, they're posing as Christians. They're acting as Christians. They're professing to be Christians. They even believe that they're Christians. But they're mockers. And such false Christians who mock God are in abundance today. They believe they're true Christians, but man, if you start talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ and the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross for our sins, then you will receive scorn from such professing Christians. Have you ever experienced that before? Have you ever had anyone who claims to be a Christian mock what you believe about the cross? Yeah? They mock God. And they turn his grace into Eselgea. They mock judgment. They mock wrath. They mock hell. They mock the bloody sacrifice of Christ. And they go after their own irreverent desires. What do they want? They want a God who is not frightening. They want a God that they can manage. They want a God that is not an embarrassment to them. Because it's embarrassing to them to say to the world, yeah, I believe that God sends people to hell. I believe that God is a just God, that He can't forgive people apart from the death of His Son, which to most of the world is foolish, the Bible tells us. And to avoid the foolishness and the offense of the cross so that they don't get mocked, they don't go down that road, they don't believe that truth. They themselves join the mocking of it. They want to look good before man and before the world. They seek honor from man and so therefore they pervert who God is. This is not about them using grace as a license to sin. This is about them perverting grace and perverting God so that these men will look good and not look bad before man. And they oppose the the holy will of God to be known by mankind. It's one of the most amazing things about... God, the God of the Bible, Jehovah, is that he wants to be known. He wants to be known. But that embarrasses a lot of people, you see. 
People would rather have a deistic God. Oh, I believe in God, but he created the world, but he doesn't have anything to do with it. That's respectable, right? Because then you can believe in God, but not offend anyone or make yourself look bad by believing anything you know, that uh, seems foolish about God. Oh, I believe in God, but he doesn't have anything to do with this world. Oh, that's cool. That's neat. Or I believe in God and he's just a forgiving and loving God and he doesn't send anybody to hell and he doesn't have this justice that he has to, you know, this dilemma of justice and love. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. We're okay with that. God making us all better people, that's a, that's a great thing. And it opposes the holy will of God, which is to be known. God wants mankind to know who he is. And who he is is not who the world thinks he is. Right? God's ways are not our ways, so his ways seem funny. But his ways and his ways alone are wise and are just and are good. It is our ways, brothers and sisters, that are perverted. We as Christians know God for who he is. And instead of being embarrassed about this before the world, we praise his name before the world. And it's not about us looking good. It's about us proclaiming how great God truly is. And sometimes that, that will mean, not sometimes, that will mean telling the world that they're wrong. It will mean telling the world that they're not right. It will mean telling the world that they have perverted the truth, even if you're hated for it. Look at verse 19. And we see why these false brothers do what they do. Why do they mock? Why do they go after their own ungodly desires? Why do they cause divisions? What does it say in verse 19? What's, what's going on in their mind? The New American Standard translates this, they're worldly-minded. Some translations might say they're sensual, which is not really a great translation of the Greek word at all. Probably the best translation would be they're natural they're natural. And he already used this word in verse 10 when he said, These men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct. The word instinct in the Greek is the same word. The things that they know naturally, it's by these things that they're destroyed. You, know, you want to know how to be a false brother, a false Christian? You want to know how to be a false teacher? You want to know how to be condemned by God? Just do what is what's natural in your mind. Just go along with the flow of what the world thinks is right and natural, even if it sounds good, right? They're natural because, verse 19, they're devoid of the Spirit. Those things go hand in hand. They think naturally. They understand naturally. They do not understand God's thoughts and God's ways because they're devoid of the Spirit. What does that remind you of? This is a, a direct parallel to another part of the Bible. Paul in by first nature, by nature children of wrath and First Corinthians chapter two. And let's turn there actually this morning. First uh, Corinthians chapter two. This is precisely what Jude has in mind when he speaks about natural minds and natural understanding. Verse 7. Actually, we can start in verse 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 6. 
and then we'll go back to Jude. We do not speak wisdom among those who are mature. Oh, excuse me. We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. So here it says in the Bible, what we believe as Christians, the world and the leaders of the world don't think it's wise at all. Just accept the fact that Christianity and what we believe about Jesus is never going to be cool or accepted by this world. It'll never be seen as wise. But it is wise. And it's they who are the fools because we speak, verse 7, God's wisdom in a mystery, the hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age had understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which has not entered into the heart of man. You know, when I'm on campus sharing the gospel with students, it's amazing to me how you can see on their faces, certain students' faces, when you share the gospel, when you say things like, did you know that God sees no one as good? And did you know that all of us are condemned and on our way to hell? Did you know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins so we could be saved totally freely and, and righteousness is a gift and anyone can accept it freely. That you can tell that these things have never entered into the heart of that, per, of, of that person. They've never heard it in their life. And you can see on the look on their face, it's like, what? You know? I thought all religious people were, believe the same thing. Or they, or they look at you with incredulity and they don't think you're really meaning what you're saying. You know? I know what you mean. Yeah, it's like this, right? You're like, no, it's not. I mean this. Like, what? And you can tell on their face it's never entered into their heart before. All that God has prepared for those who love him. Now look at verse 10. Here's what Jude was getting at. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. So if you're a Christian and not only has the ways of God and the thoughts of God been introduced to you, but you have accepted them and believed them, taken them as truth. It is because the Spirit has revealed them to you. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. Now we have received... Not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things freely given to us by God, which things we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. But a natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually discerned. This is what Jude means when he says, these guys mock what they don't understand. They go after their own desires. They cause divisions. They don't believe in the truth of the grace of God because they're natural, devoid of the Spirit. They have not had the revelation of the truth. This is how you know someone has the Spirit, that they understand believe 
and hold fast to the truth. Now let's go back to Jude and look at verse 20 with me. Jude gives us his second command here, his second imperative. In order to stand firm, brothers and sisters, not only in Jude's day but today, we need to remember, that's the first command, we need to remember and fill our minds with truth, be forewarned and forearmed. Second thing Jude tells us that we need to do is to build. We need to build. Now, if you know that a hurricane is coming, then if you're forewarned about that, then you're able to build. That is, you're able to build your knowledge about what you should do, and then you're able to build your house. You need to strengthen your house or whatever else. You need to bring the horses inside, or you know what you need to do. But being forewarned is the first thing. That's remember, and then acting on that or building is the second thing. Basically, you fortify what is threatened. You fortify what is threatened. Hurricane is coming. Okay, time to go and fortify that thing which can be uh, harmed by the hurricane. False teachers are coming. False teachers are here. I'm forewarned. It's time to go fortify what is threatened. And what is in danger here? You are. The danger is you being moved off of your most holy faith. The danger is you being moved away or other people being moved away from the most holy faith. The faith that in verse 3 Jude tells us to contend for. It is the truth and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Therefore, build. Therefore, fortify yourself on it so that you won't be moved and so that you will be able to help others. Now, there are three ways to build yourself up. Three ways to build yourself up. First, by learning and growing in your knowledge of the gospel. Turn, with, turn to Acts chapter 20. Keep your finger in Jude. Acts chapter 20. So if we know that false teaching is coming, then in order to, bi- to build ourselves up and to fortify ourselves, you need to grow in your understanding of the truth. You need to get good teaching. You need to go to the scriptures and learn and hear the gospel and understand it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 29, Paul warns here in tears that false teachers are coming. And he doesn't just warn them that false teachers are coming. He tells them something, how to prepare for it. Or he, he gives them instruction as well. I know that, in verse 29, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. You know, someone might say, man, okay, we get it. Three years every day, we get it. Okay. And yet, look at what happened. Look at the letters of the early church. Look at the problems that were there. Look at the direction that the so-called Christians went. So that by the 1500s, there needed to be a radical um, course correction in those who professed to be Christians. So no, Paul, this wasn't overdone. He was setting the precedent. 
He was at the very beginning trying to keep that tree straight, right? But so often today, you know, we hear these warnings and we say, yeah. Three years, night and day with tears. Verse 32. And now I commend you to God and to what? The word of his grace. The message of his grace. I I am... This is what's going to keep you, okay? God and his mess and his gospel. That's what's going to keep you. The word of his grace. And what is it able to do? It's able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How many of you would like to, have, to be a part of that blessed group? To, to be among those who have an inheritance with God? Be among the set-apart ones? Well, here's how you do it. The word of his grace. Build yourself up in it so that you will not be removed and shaken by false teachers. Reading, studying the scriptures, being in the word of God, growing in your understanding of the gospel, not being stagnant, not being superficial in your understanding of the gospel. Sadly, many Christians are. It's interesting that one of the earliest Christian writers outside of the Bible, a guy by the name of Polycarp, said this in his letter to the Philippians. If you study the epistles of the blessed Apostle Paul, you can be built up in the faith given to you. Isn't that interesting that he said that? So even the early, early guy like Polycarp was on the right track here. Study the epistles of Paul. Of course, you can study other epistles as well. And you will be built up in the faith given unto you. That's early wisdom from an early church writer. So, first way of building yourself up, growing and learning and reading, understanding the gospel. Second way is prayer. Look at verse 20. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Prayer. Jesus himself taught us that, didn't he? Watch and pray, lest you fall into temptation. I would guess that we would have less troubles as Christians if we prayed more. It's just a guess. I think it's probably true. Watch and pray that you fall not into temptation. Prayer is essential to building yourself up on your most holy faith. Now the question is, what does it mean here to pray in the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to pray in the Holy Spirit? Now, I, would, I know that there are Pentecostal dear brothers and sisters here, here raise their hands, right? And they'd say, I know, this means praying in tongues. Praying in the Holy Spirit is praying in tongues. In fact, I remember going when I was young to a, to a meeting where a, a Pentecostal brother, dear brother, um, taught from this passage in Jude, and he taught that this means praying in tongues. If you want to build up yourself in the most holy faith, you should pray in the Holy Spirit, which means praying in tongues. I have no doubt that praying in tongues is encouraging. I have no doubt. But the Bible tells us that not all speak in tongues. And Jude is a a letter that is written to all Christians. And this is an instruction for all Christians. So it can't be speaking in tongues, because this is for all. So what does it mean, pray in the Holy Spirit? And I'd like to offer this suggestion. 
This is something that only Christians can do, right? Can a non-Christian pray in the Holy Spirit? No. So praying in the Holy Spirit is only something that a Christian can do. So in order for us to understand what praying in the Holy Spirit is, we simply need to ask the question, how can Christians pray differently than non-Christians? It's a good question because non-Christians can pray, you know. And they can pray very similar to the way that we as Christians pray. But in what way can we Christians pray that non-Christians cannot? Now, non-Christians can pray and give thanks to God for their food. They can give thanks to God for their life. They can pray for God's blessings. They can pray for help. They can pray for protection. They can pray all these things that we pray. What can they not do? What about their prayers is different than our prayers? Ailey says it's full of Jesus Christ. I like that. Okay, well, some of our non-Christian friends pray in the name of Jesus Christ, but yes. That's it. it. Both of you are right. Our prayers are in the Holy Spirit because they are praying, there are prayers that are in the truth. And they are prayers that have understanding. And they are prayers that are based upon the gospel of Christ. This is what it means to pray in the Holy Spirit. It's actually a contrast to verse 19. He says, these are natural-minded people who don't have the Spirit. You Christians are not natural-minded people. You Christians have the mind of Christ. You Christians do understand the thoughts of God, the ways of God, the deep things of God. You Christians do have the Spirit. Therefore, you can pray differently than non-Christians. You can pray with understanding. And that is how Jude tells us to pray, with understanding and in the will of God, because we know. This is essential for building up yourself on the most holy faith. So praying that way would probably mean, uh, of course, as Ailey said, praying in Jesus' name with an understanding. But more than that, it would be praying that God would teach you more about the gospel of his grace, giving thanks to God for his grace, giving thanks to God for righteousness through faith, praising God in your prayers for the gospel of Christ. Praying that God would keep you from lies that would lead you away from his truth. So you and I should do. Lastly, building yourself up would include fellowshipping with other believers corporately building and edifying one another. Because this phrase in verse 20, building yourselves up, can also be taken in a corporate sense. Building yourselves up together. Building up one another. And isn't that what we find in Ephesians chapter 4? And let's turn there. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, we find this very thing. Ephesians 4, 11 to 16 And here it says, God gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So there's a role there for leaders in the church. Obviously, that's why it's important not to be a solo Christian and not go to church and not be around leaders in the church that God has... um, set up in your life to oversee and to teach and these things. But it's more than that. That's one part of building up of the body of Christ. But look at verse 13. Until we all attain, and here's what it means to be fortified in faith, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God 
to a mature man and to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. How many of you can raise your hand and say you've reached that point? If you haven't, then you should be still learning and growing and praying and coming to church and fellowshipping. Because you haven't arrived. Verse 14, So that we are no longer children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and by the craftiness of deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, this is referring to every one of us, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That requires all of us working together to edify and to build each other up. This is how we guard ourselves against false doctrine. You might think personally for yourself, well, I'm not going to fall into false doctrine. What about your children? What about their children's children? What about the next generation of Christians down the road? How are we going to keep that plant straight so that not, we're not just thinking about ourselves, but our, one of the teachings of the Bible is teach your kids and their kids' kids and their kids' kids. This is going to be an effort of all of us building each other up, of all of us praying and of all of us studying and growing in our faith. Don't be content just because you feel confident in the gospel. We all need to be growing and helping each other because false teachers are coming. How would you like your grandson to be a heretic and lead the church astray in 2050? You know? Let's work together here. This is one reason why that we talked about in our last series, Life Together, why it's important to be in fellowship with other Christians. Not that these... Now, these three things that I've mentioned on building yourselves up, reading your Bible, growing in your understanding, prayer... And fellowship sound cliche, don't they? We've all heard it before, haven't we? Read your Bible, pray, and be amongst believers in fellowship. Sounds cliche, brothers and sisters, but it is not. It is tried, tested, and true age-old wisdom. That's why we keep hearing it, you know? So just because we've heard it a million times doesn't mean it's cliche. It's age-old wisdom. And those who take heed to that wisdom and who are reading their Bibles, who are growing in their understanding and not being stagnant, who are praying and who are coming to fellowship, those are the ones who are in crisis, the ones who are able to stand firm and help others. Now, verse 21. Jude finishes off his exhortation to stand firm with two more commands. We'll just look at these briefly. Keep yourselves in the love of God. That seems like a strange statement. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Most of us wouldn't say that to someone else, right? Now, what Jude is not saying is keep making God love you. Okay? Keep making God love you. Or maybe another phrase that's similar, stay in God's good graces. Right? Stay in God's good Keep yourselves in the love of God means don't do anything that's going to make him not love you anymore. This is not what Jude is saying. That is what the natural mind thinks, isn't it? How many of you know that? Um, Naturally, we think, man, if I sin really bad or do something stupid, uh, God's not going to love me anymore. Now, the other way, what we are to believe seems foolish to the world. But we are not to believe 
what seems natural to us, but we are to believe what seems foolish to the world, but which is in fact the wisdom of God that reveals who God is. Okay. The Bible teaches us that we do not have to do anything to make God love us and to stay in his good graces. For God proved and demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners who didn't even believe in him, okay, Christ died for us. And it is through Jesus Christ that we know that God loves us and that we are persuaded that nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Not things to come, not things present, not any angelic host, not life, not death, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God which has been revealed through Jesus Christ. Dear friends, God loves you. And if you're not a Christian today, God loves you. And if you go to hell, God loves you. And God has demonstrated his love for you in that while you were yet a sinner who was an enemy to God and who didn't care about God, Christ died for you and that shows that God loves you. The question is whether you are going to enjoy that or not. Whether you're going to believe in that or not. God's love is always there like a sun in the sky that never sets. The Bible does say that one day it'll be like the sun never goes down, right? You imagine if the sun was just always shining all the time? You can go outside and enjoy it or you can sulk in the shadows, right? You can hide in the basement in the dark. The sun is shining on you, but you're hiding in the dark. Or you can go out in the sun and believe in it and enjoy it. And this is what it means. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Not God is going to stop loving you or you need to make God love you. God does love you. Now you, you keep yourself in that sunshine. You believe in it. You enjoy it. You rest in it. How do you stay in the love of God? By simply believing. Jesus in John 15, 9-11, himself told the disciples to abide in his love. That's what he said. As the Father loves me, so I love you. Abide in my love. And how do you do that? He says, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love. And what is the commandments of Jesus? The commandments of Jesus is to believe in him. And of course, by believing in him, to love each other. Meaning, to embrace one another and love one another for righteousness sake. If we simply do that, we will abide in the love of God for us. God loves us and by believing in it, we will enjoy that love. Abide in my love, Jesus himself said. So to paraphrase Jude, he'd be saying something like this, keep believing the true love of God. Not the phony love of God that these false teachers are talking about, that God just loves you and forgives everybody without a without any um, sacrifice of Christ. But as John tells us in 1 John, this is the love of God, not that we loved him, but that he loved us and gave his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Keep, Keep believing, Keith, the true love of God for you. Keep enjoying, Tom, the true love of God for you. Every single day, keep yourself in that. That will make you stand firm in trials. Second thing Jude says is to wait eagerly and expectantly for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Eagerly and expectantly 
wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. This is the last thing Jude commands us in order to stand firm so that we will be able to help others. In order to stand firm, our mind must be filled with hope. The hope of eternal life. What is in view here is Judgment Day. Judgment Day that Jude has already mentioned. But the good news is that, well, Judgment Day will be extremely horrible for those who don't believe. It will be extremely glorious for those who do. It will not be bad for Christians. And the reason is why? Because we Christians are better than the rest of the world in how we live our lives? That's a joke. The reason why we are excited for the coming of Christ is not because we feel like we're better than the rest of the world in how we live our lives. But the reason why we are excited for the coming of Christ is because of the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And notice again how Jude draws an emphasis to our Lord. Not the Lord and the Jesus of the false teachers. You remember in verse 4 he says, they take the grace of our God and they change it into a selgeia. They deny our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ. But here he says, it is the mercy of our Lord, Jesus. Not the Jesus that is false, but the Jesus that is true that we have our hope in. This is so significant that he draws our attention to the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ and not the general mercy of God. Because men talk about God's mercy in a general sense. Muslims speak about Allah being the most merciful. That's what they think. They think that their God is the most merciful. And we Christians have news for Muslims, don't we? Allah is not the most merciful the God of Jesus Christ, the God, of, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the most merciful. Because God doesn't just ignore our sin. Because God doesn't just look at us and say, yeah, I'm just going to choose to be merciful to this person for, just because I want to. But God looks at us sinners and he sees that we deserve damnation and he's actually okay with that. He's not saying... I'm going to deny my justice here because I'm just going to ignore it. But God is a truly just God and God is concerned with his justice and God looks upon us and sees us as sinners and there's a part of God which requires the penalty. And it's in light of this justice of God, it's in light of the character of God that is just, that his mercy is seen for what it is. That even though we are his enemies, even though we are sinners, even though we deserve damnation, and God does not ignore that, God sent his Son to save us from that fate. So it's not the general mercy of God, like the Muslims say God is merciful, but don't believe in the cross. It is the specific mercy of God revealed through Jesus Christ. As Michael Green says, it is the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to which Jude particularly refers, which is an allusion to the atonement which he wrought upon the cross. Mercy is possible for sinful man only because of what he there achieved. That's the mercy we're hoping in. The mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. That a sinful man or a sinful woman 
who puts their faith and their hope not in an unjust God, but in a just God who saves them through Christ and puts their faith and their hope in the sacrifice, the bloody sacrifice of Christ, just like Abel did, who didn't trust in his works, who didn't approach God saying, give me what I deserve because I'm good, but who realizing their sin and realizing that they fall short, puts their faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, in the mercy of God through Jesus Christ, that person is saved forevermore. That person has eternal life. That person is saved from the wrath of God as a totally free gift, not something we have to work for and earn and strive for. Just ours for the receiving through faith. That is the power of the blood of Christ, brothers and sisters. Well, it seems like we're running out of time. So we'll have to finish up this next cluster of imperatives next week on reaching out. So this morning, how do we stand firm in our faith so that we can reach out to others? It's the same today as it was in Jude's day. Remember, take heed. And by taking heed, fortify yourselves on your most holy and precious faith by immersing yourself in scriptures, in prayer, in fellowship. Keep believing in the true love of God and keep hoping in the true mercy of God through Jesus Christ. Then when crisis hits, you won't curl up in a corner and cry your eyes out, but you'll be able to stand firm and not be tossed by every wind of doctrine and you'll be able to help others who are wavering. Brothers and sisters, Jude is a positive letter of exhortation and instruction. We have more need today to stand firm than ever before because the amount of false teachers and false teachings is more than it has ever been. So just ask yourself, how are you standing firm today? Or what, what are you doing t- in order to ensure that you're fortified? Are you fortifying yourself? Are you following the instructions that Jude has given? May we all be that lifeguard who knows how to swim and can jump into the water to help others in time of crisis. Holding out the word of life and the truth of God by the Spirit because we know God for who he is as the God of true love and mercy in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these instructions that are relevant to us. We thank you for age-old wisdom. We pray that you would help us to not spurn things that we've heard many times before, to not mock at uh, repeated warnings and repeated instructions. Help us to have a vision not only for ourselves, but for others and for the generation of Christians to come. And Lord, help us to help others um, and, and deliver them from the lies of Satan who wants to counterfeit the truth of God. Thank you for loving us. Thank you that your, your love shines like the sun and that we can enjoy it every day. Thank you for the blood of Christ that makes us righteous before you through faith apart from works. Lord, build us up in this most holy faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.